You know, the difference between mass and economy of force is mass is a real numbers game as far as we're going to focus this concentration of troops, firepower, um, or advantage in a given, most likely pivotal point of a fight. Economy of force is when a military commander looks at the entire spread of, of equipment, skills, ability that he can leverage in that fight or she, um, to, to use those um, forces with the greatest economy, the minimum effective amount of folks you need to accomplish a mission without over committing troops to a fight. You know, you put too many in a place where you don't need them. You might jeopardize them if the tide changes and you, you're just, you're being inefficient. Hey, what's up, Flatirons? How are we? Good, 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 good. If you haven't been tracking with us in this series that we've been in called The War Effort, uh, that's Jim's friend, uh, specifically Jim's friend, Rourke Denver, Navy SEAL commander. And uh, we've been in this series where we've been talking about a, a war effort is when a group of people are engaged in a, in a struggle together to fight for something that's really, really important, something that really, really matters. And so we're drawing some comparisons between uh, some of these principles of war, uh, militarily speaking, and these orders, these marching orders that Jesus has given all of his followers and all of his disciples. And so Rourke has been really, really helpful as like a consultant. Again, he's Jim's friend. He just, I just have met him a couple times. And um, it's been really, really good. He, Rourke actually, he came to speak for our, um, to our staff to just do some like leadership development stuff, tell some cool Navy SEAL stories and things like that this past Tuesday. And it was really, it was really wild. It blew my mind. The, the night before on Monday night, I got a text message from Rourke and it said, um, hey bro. And I couldn't believe he called me bro. It was like, wow. Um, and uh, I said, hey bro, why don't you and I just hang out? Out for a little while uh, before staff meeting tomorrow. Let's let's get together. And I was like, yes, sir. Tell me what time to report. And so uh, the next morning, about 6 37 o'clock, something like that, uh, we got together and I put together a little slideshow montage to document our time together. And um, <laughs> as since we're bros, all bros begin the day with a bro session. So we did some bench press and a workout and, and Rourke just cheered me on. It was it was awesome. And uh, and then after that, um, I was like, hey, what's your favorite scene in a movie? And he was like, that one scene in The Predator where Arnold Schwarzenegger and his buddy, they come up and they shake hands and they flex their biceps. And I was like, me too, that's my favorite scene. And so we reenacted that scene in The Predator. There's a lot of similarities, I think, there. And then, um, and then after that, he actually consulted me on a top secret classified mission and got some of my input. And he said I was really, really helpful. And then we spent some time together in my office and he read me his favorite book, The Art of War. And then he actually gave me his favorite gun. I, I was so humbled and amazed that he would do that. And then we just got together for a cup of coffee and celebrated, celebrated just kind of life, you know, and um, Jim's friend is really cool, it turns out. <laughs> and uh, in all seriousness, this, uh, this series that we've been in, I think the parallels work pretty well. I mean, it's been pretty poignant and it's been helpful to me. It's been registering in, on different levels because um, ever since Christmas, I've been learning how to play chess. Anybody like to play play chess. I, I've never learned how to play chess until Christmas. My, my son, my 11-year-old, uh, got a chess board for Christmas, and I didn't even know he knew how to play chess, but apparently a few years ago, his third grade teacher taught like the whole class how to play, and so we've been playing against one another. He taught me how to play, and the, the problem with that is literally he beats me like 75% of the time, and he's not shy about it. Like he talks trash to me the entire time. He doesn't even have to focus all of his attention on me. He'll watch a movie while playing me in chess and still and he'll do that thing where he's like you sure you want to do that 
you sure you want to make that move? I'm like, shut up. I'll make you sleep on the curb, you know? And, uh, and it's gotten to the point now where I'll ask him, this happened this week, I'll ask him, hey, hey, hey Eli, let's play chess. And he'll be like, nah, I don't really feel like it. As if I'm not a worthy opponent. And it's making me angry. It's making me very angry. But the thing that I'm learning through chess is that these seemingly small and insignificant moves of individual pieces actually create great impact on the overall game, or in this case, battle, right? Rourke talked about, about some of these principles of war that we've been walking through. Uh, there's this concept, this principle of mass, and there's also one that's, that's similar but different called economy of force. And as a church, we can leverage both of these things. As a church, we obviously have great mass across all of our three campuses, the thousands of people who attend around here. But think about how that mass can be leveraged for people. Like when we do a food drive, think of how many thousands of people get fed for months on end because across our campuses, we come together and leverage our, our mass. When we leverage our finances for our local partners and our global partners around the world, it makes a huge difference in people's lives because of our mass. But that's different from economy of force. Economy of force is how individuals are uniquely positioned to make a difference. And, and through some of my like, research on, on principles of war and things like that and time with my good friend Rourke and all that, uh, I, I would say economy of force is best described this way. It's employing the most purposeful effort at the most important place at the most important time. And that, that just makes sense. And that ties in actually with, a, with another principle of war, which is just simplicity. Just keep things simple. There's no reason um, to engage in a whole plethora of things if you can just engage in one single thing and do it really, really well. Now, what does all that have to do with Jesus and the Bible and church and all that kind of thing? You and I, we have a tendency, and we've talked about this many times, we have this tendency to believe that we're in a battle and we're in a struggle, and we are, but we confuse who the enemy is. We think that we're at war against one another, we think we're at war against her or him or them or whatever that is, and the Bible gives a distinctly different picture of the battle that we're locked in. We've talked about this before, Ephesians chapter 6 says it this way, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, in other words, our battle, our conflict is not with one another. But against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And li listen, you may be here today and you may be going, man, I'm not even a Christian. I don't claim to follow Jesus. I just lost a bet or whatever that is. At some point in your life, you've come across a circumstance that was undeniably evil. And you, you couldn't put necessarily language to it, but you have been convinced at some point in your life that evil does exist. And the Bible actually confirms confirms your suspicions that there is such a thing as evil and there is something out there that is set against you. We did a series a while back called Dark Forces where we talked all about the importance of knowing our enemy and knowing what his strategies against us are. You can go back online and listen to that. What we're going to focus on a little bit more today is the fact that we have a commander, we have a chief, we have a king who's not left us alone and he's given us very specific marching orders. And we've been walking through these marching orders this whole series. Check it out again, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, again, we tend to just skim over things in the Bible without really kind of letting things soak in sometimes. So what we need to look at here is the fact that Jesus is making an astonishing claim. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, that means everywhere, has been given to him. 
Now, the question becomes, do you really believe that? Like, do we really believe that? And, and a lot of times what we do is we just kind of line Jesus up in a, in, a, in a row of good teachers who've been influential on this earth and go, he's kind of like one of, he's just one of those good teachers. But C.S. Lewis famously said it this way, that's patronizing nonsense. Jesus didn't allow us the opportunity to refer to him as simply a good teacher because good teachers don't make those kinds of claims about themselves. So what, what C.S. Lewis said was really we have a trilemma here. We have three deals on the table as it pertains to Jesus. Either he's a liar, and he's making this whole thing up, and all authority in heaven on earth does not belong to him, which means we shouldn't trust a single thing that comes out of his mouth. Or he's a lunatic, he's delusional, he actually does believe that he has all authority, but he doesn't really have all authority, which means he's absolutely dangerous and nobody should follow him or listen to him. Or, here's the other deal on the table, or he's Lord. Or he really is who he says he is and will do everything that he's ever promised to do. Now again, if you're just checking this thing out, you don't have to come to terms with that today. But at some point in all of our lives, Jesus literally has, has positioned himself in such a way that we have to make a decision of what we believe to be true about Jesus and how that's going to impact our life. And what I would encourage us all with is to be brave with whatever conclusion we arrive to at whatever point in time that happens. If you think he's a liar, then... Live your life based on that. If you think he's a lunatic, then live your life based on that. If you think he's Lord, then live your life based on that. And for those of us who were already, we're going, man, I've taken that deal. I believe he is Lord. Then we need to really ask ourselves, do we really believe those words we just sang? Is he really Lord of everything? Because really, we're good at compartmentalizing as Christians and going, well, Jesus, I'll let you be Lord of like my church life, my prayer time, my Bible study time. I'll, I'll let you be Lord of a few things, but I certainly won't let you be Lord of everything. But the reality is he's either Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. He makes a claim and that claim is total. There is no part of life. There is no thing that Jesus looks at and goes, oh, that doesn't belong to me. We say it all the time around here. Everything belongs to Jesus. Everything belongs to Jesus. He is our ultimate authority. And because he's our ultimate authority, that means we need to take his orders, his commands, very, very seriously. And here's the good news. He's a benevolent leader. He wants good for us. He has good intentions towards us. John three sixteen through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through who? Through him, right? So out of that authority, he gives us the assurance that, that he intends to be with us always. And he came to save us and reconnect us back to, to God. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's why he hung on a cross. That's why he rose from the grave. That was his purpose. That was his mission. So that all people everywhere would have an opportunity to be transferred, as Jim's been talking about, from this, this realm of darkness and condemnation into the realm of the kingdom of God and light and grace and mercy and love. So Jesus says, in light of all that, go. Go and tell everybody about that. Go to all the nations. And that's like the 40,000 foot perspective on this war effort. This is the macro level perspective. But the way that that gets accomplished, the way that all nations get reached is in a micro level way because nations are made up of people. Nations are made up of individuals. And here's something we have to really kind of ratchet into our minds and into our hearts today. Not everyone has the same amount of relational equity with everyone else. We don't all have equal levels of relational equity with everybody that we come across, which means that we have to start paying attention to who God has uniquely orchestrated our lives to interact with. 
This is what I want us to understand this weekend. You have been uniquely, strategically, and specifically positioned by God to have a certain level of influence in someone's life. Uniquely, strategically, and specifically, like a chessboard, God has arranged things such that you have relationship with certain people. But we don't have the same amount of relational equity with everybody. Let, let me give you an example of how that can, can, can go wrong, all right? I've got this friend that I've, I've had for a long time, several years now, and, and when we get together, we talk about everything. We talk about football and, and fighting and sports, all the important things, and we talk about, and we talk about family, and we talk about, we talk about Christianity a lot. We talk about God. We talk about Jesus. We talk about other religions. We talk about politics. We talk about, we talk about all kinds of stuff, and at this point in my friend's life, he is not a follower of Jesus. I would love for him to be, but he's not a follower of Jesus at this point in his life and I, I care about him so the other day he texts me uh, from a plane and and he says I'm sitting next to this religious person and they're saying all kinds of weird stuff and he goes and he always he always does this he goes this is your team bro like and I try to tell him like bro there are weird Christians there are weird atheists there are just weird people I'm sorry all right you know and and then he he played like this trump card and he was like and they say they go to flat irons I'm like oh So, so I got more specificity on what exactly weird things they were saying. They were saying some really weird things. And so I texted him back. I was like, lean over and tell them Pastor Scott says, shut up. <laughs> I don't think he had the courage to do it, but he should have. I would have been, I would have been thankful. Here's the, here's the problem, right? That person does not have years worth of relational equity in my friend's life like I do. And I feel like every time a weird person says weird stuff to him, that sets us back. Anybody else ever feel like you have to protect your non-Christian friends from weird Christians or mean Christians? Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. So the reality is you and I have all been uniquely positioned in certain people's lives and God has given us a unique level of influence in certain people's lives more than others. Another place we go wrong is sometimes we confuse the principles of mass an economy of force and when we use mass on individuals it often goes very very badly when we overwhelm people when we team up on people when when listen let me give you another example I was sitting at home the other night it was about eight o'clock at night which might as well be midnight for me all right that's very late in the evening to me I'm a morning person I'm not an evening person and so the objective around seven becomes let's get these children in bed so that so that my wife and I have some time together while I'm still conscious and so it's it's eight o'clock all the kids are in bed I'm just about to lay down on the sofa next to my wife and I hear someone knock on the door now that immediately agitates me a little bit because because this is very late all right now some of you night people are like what are you talking about all right this is how my world World works okay so I'm thinking this better be an emergency with one of the neighbors this better be something really really important I go and I open the door and there's a particular religious group of people standing on my front porch and I won't tell you who they were they have badges the um <laughs> that doesn't give it away all right <laughs> much and and I'm telling you I, I think it was about five seconds from the time I opened the door to the time I shut the door and, and some of you that will disappoint you and you'll be very disappointed in me and I'm perfectly comfortable with you being disappointed in me all right and some of you are thinking you're a pastor you should have invited them into your home and you should have spent some time engaging with them and you know about their religion yeah I get all that you know what I wanted to do sit on my sofa with my wife and at that point, this relationship that we did not have was only adversarial. So when we, when we gang up on people, I think it oftentimes goes really, really badly. 
So what I would propose is that we actually adopt a biblical model of doing this. Who would have thought? So let's take a look at John chapter 1, and I'll I'll show you something that I think uh, is more effective and more natural. Check this out. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was standing with two of his disciples. He had followers, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, as Jesus walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, this is the one we've been waiting on, guys. This is the one that I've been telling you about. This is the one that I came, and I arrived just to point to him, behold, the Lamb of God, the one that, that we've all been waiting for. And the two disciples heard John say this, and so they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, wh- where are you stand? And he said to them, and I want you to hang on to this language, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they, they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother. Take note of that. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, there's a million things that we could, we could talk about there, a million rabbit trails we could go off on. I just want you to notice one simple dynamic. All right? And it's about to be played out one more time as one more example. Look at this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was considered like backwoods, like Hickville. I mean, that's what it was considered. It was like, can anything good come from Kansas? You know, I mean, that, that's what they're, it's NCAA tournament time. All right, folks, just hang, hang, go cats. All right. Now, Philip said, notice what he said. Philip said to him, he doesn't engage in an argument, he doesn't debate with him, what does he say? Come and see. Just come and see. Now what I want you to notice here is you have these, you have these men who have a very limited amount of experience with Jesus, like ours, right? Very limited amount of experience and knowledge of Jesus. They, 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 they've had credibility from John the Baptist to say, this is the one, this is the one, he's the Messiah, he's the one you've been looking for. They don't know everything about Jesus, they haven't even experienced that much about Jesus, but their first step is to go to who? People that they are uniquely positioned by God to have influence in. People they love, people they interact with, people they care about, people that they understand the nuances of their personality. I mean, there's no argument over, over you know, with Nathaniel over his sarcastic remark. Philip's just like, yeah, just come and see. Just come and see. I'm not going to argue with you about this. Just come see for yourself. Now, this ties into something we talked about in the Parent Fail series. And we need, we need to understand this deep down inside. It's so important. And this is very freeing, okay? The one thing that you and I want most for those we love is the one thing that we cannot do. The one thing that we want most for those that we love is the one thing that we cannot do. We can't save anybody, we can't fix anybody, and we can't change anybody. And that is very good news because you and I make terrible gods, so when we play God and when we try to control the universe, we make a mess of things, don't we? I do it all the time. But it's very freeing to know, man, I can't fix anybody. I can't save anybody. I can't change anybody. So this frees us up to interact in a normal way with people, which I think is really, really important. You know, Philip, he, he didn't get on a, in a chariot and go make this announcement in Rome. One day Rome would become Christian, but he just started with his friend. Andrew didn't go stand on street corners and start telling people about Jesus first. What did he do? He went, to his, he went to his brother. Which means that in military terms, they understood that they stood at a decisive point. 
In military terms, a decisive point is something that it matters and it's attainable. Now, Jesus makes clear everybody matters. Everybody matters. Everybody in your realm of influence matters. Everybody in your realm of influence, Jesus came to seek and to save and to provide the opportunity for them to be reconnected to God. The question becomes, who's attainable in your realm of influence? So you might be thinking, man, I would just really love it if some, you know, world leader, some, some influential actor, or actress, or whatever would become a Christian. That would be awesome. But you don't have the relational equity with them to make that happen. You knock on their door, you're going to get arrested, right? What you can do is pray for them, but the question becomes, Whose life do you interact with and who have you been uniquely positioned in their life to have these types of conversations with? And here's the thing, as, as Christians, and I, I'm, I'm really guilty of this, I think in this politically correct world that we live in, I think oftentimes we are guilty of saying no for people without ever asking. We'll just assume the answer is going to be no, so we never say come and see. And for me, I, I, listen, I totally resonate with that. You, you guys have no idea what it's like to be at a party and somebody asks like, hey, what do you do? And then you go, okay, here we go. I'm a pastor. And then the record screeches to a halt. All eyes turn to you. Everybody sets down their drink, you know, stop smoking whatever they're smoking, you know, whatever that, whatever that is. And then they just all assume that, you know, I'm going to start to systematically work around the room and condemn everyone and try to convert everyone, Right. So, so, but what I often do too often is because of fear of that dynamic, I just, I just kind of hide. <laughs> and I never really invite people to come and see. The, the, the other thing that we so often do is I think, we have to, I think we have to give up this notion that we have to be qualified to say, come and see. Jesus' disciples were a mess most of the time. Most of the time they got things wrong. So I know we, we get hung up and go, man, my life's not perfect. I still make mistakes. I don't have everything figured out. So maybe I should just wait till that happens before I invite anybody else to come bump into Jesus. And I don't think that's doing anybody any favors. I've seen my friends do this much better than I do. For a long time in my office, in a corner of my office, in my Bible where I, where I study and prepare and things like that. And I, uh, I had two post-it notes for a long time with two names, two of my friends who at the time were self-proclaimed atheists and it was just a reminder to pray for them uh, every day and one of them's name was Eric. My name's Eric Telly. Um, I grew up in San Jose, California, uh, South Bay Area and I'm currently a sports performance coach in South Denver. Growing up I was baptized Catholic, had no idea what that meant. Um, just I knew every Sunday we had to get up and go um, and that happened for a number of years and after a while, that just kind of faded away. So you're out here in the Denver area, you're training people, you're in the gym all the time. At what point did you cross paths with uh, this big ugly guy to your right? <laughs> Vinny and I met about six, a little over six years ago. Um, and it was just before Christmas. He Christmas was, Eve. Christmas Eve. Um, it was just him and I, Lauren was at the gym, and then in walks, this on Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Exactly. Best gift you ever got. Yes. Thank you. Unwrap that one. Thank you. you know, at what point did you guys start talking about just life in general, that kind of thing? Was it pretty quick? Did you guys hit it off? Like, you know, how'd that work? If you're asking me, it wasn't quick. Because, no, you know, I don't open you're, up too you're, quick. You're kind of hard to get to know sometimes right. for some we're people. Gonna, we're going to, I'm going to stick around we're just doing work yeah. at first it was, I was strictly there just for his skill set yeah. right 
we just kind of started bonding slowly. You know? I remember being, we were talking about this before we started, you know, kind of airing the, you know, doing this, but he and I were attending some fights. You were cornering some people. We saw you one night and we have another close friend who is, you know, was an atheist. You considered yourself an atheist and you're like, you know that I'm on the atheist team, right? You know, Correct. and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. You know, it's cool. We can, we can still hang. So like, this was really early, like in your faith journey as well. So a lot of this stuff was really new to you in regards to Jesus and church and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd say probably like the first while I'm in there talking about a completely different thing sure. than Jesus. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, as my as my target seemed to shift a little bit, I think I think maybe he sensed that a little bit. But a lot of what I was starting to notice in the bigger picture, you know, outside of the whole fight scheme was you know, things that were happening in his life, um, ups and downs and things that were going on with family and, and the direction that he was trying to take his life, all of that collectively, I'm like, okay, there's, there's this common denominator. And I don't know if I, I believe it or not because of things that I had seen and been through and kind of the, for lack of a better phrase, the sales pitch that I was given to church and Jesus and do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. I'm like, oh, here we go. We never had that conversation. And things started to get really rocky in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember the point that I actually approached him about going to church and checking out Flatirons. And you know, I've never heard Scott preach, but I think I want to hear what these guys have to say kind of make up my mind from there. So you really did do just the kind of come and see, belong before you believe. Like you didn't, you weren't bought in at all. You literally were just checking it all. out. And I remember like you would, he would roll in. He thinks he has his own personal parking space at the Lafayette campus. Fortunately, he didn't go to Lafayette campus anymore. I kicked him out. He goes to the Denver campus, but like, he, you would be you would be riding in the back, you know, and, and at what point did you turn the corner of going, okay, with or without Vinny, I've got to keep exploring this? Uh, just a couple weeks in, uh, he was hitting me really, really hard. Like, I don't want to be here. This is brutal. This is getting very, very personal. I feel like I'm the only person in the room and it's just all coming down on me. I'm like, okay, this is not going to be easy, but I'm not here for easy. I'm here for truth. I'm here for something different. So you're watching his, you know, life and you're watching how he's processing all this. What were your thoughts on what was going on with him when he first started coming to Flatirons? Were you hopeful? Were you nervous? What'd that look like for you? Oh, super. I'm all good. I'm nervous anytime I bring anybody, especially if you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I was definitely nervous. Like I wanted him to, I wanted him to get spoken to so badly that I couldn't even focus on what the heck the service was about. I'm sitting there just kind of looking at him out of the corner of my eye to see what was going on. And I saw saw him getting, like he was saying, getting punched in the face with a lot of stuff that was happening. And, and truthfully, that's kind of what I wanted to see happen. I wanted to, for some real hard truth to come out and for him to have to kind of chew on that for a second. It was tough to get the hard truth. But in all of those talks, there was there were nuggets in there that you know, this isn't, this doesn't have to be it. How would you describe yourself now? I would describe myself as a Christian, but then I'm still very much working through a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm.
Anyone identify with that last statement that, that Eric made? I'm a Christian, but I'm still working on a lot of stuff. Anyone? Yeah, and if you're just checking this place out, that's the type of community this is. There's followers of Jesus here, and we're not perfect, and we're just trying to figure some stuff out. Listen, Scott Nickel didn't change, fix, or save Eric Telly. Vinny Lopez didn't change, fix, or save Eric Telly. I mean, Vinny has no credibility. He wears his daughter's sweatpants, for crying out loud, you know? <laughs> Hi, Vinny. He's at West Campus, or Denver Campus. Yeah. No, who changed? Eric Telly, who's changing Eric Telly? Jesus, who began a good work in Eric Telly, will be faithful to complete it just like he will be in you. Now, here, here's where we're at, okay? Past few weeks, we've been talking about this a lot. Who, who's God uniquely put in your life? Who, who's, who's God used in your life to position where you are? All that kind of stuff. And we've written down 75,000 names of people that we would like to see bump into Jesus because they're people that we know about, care about, and love, right? And it's, getting, it's about go time. Like, like, this is out of the theoretical. We're not just writing down names on pieces of paper anymore. Now's the time where it's time to start making those invites and making making those requests of people to simply come and see. And it's easy to get cold feet. And a lot of times what happens is we get distracted in our own head in the midst of that. And, and we start to question things and start to go, man, is this even all for real? Is this really worth it? And what I want to point you to is simply this, that the people who Jesus originally gave these marching orders to were wrestling with all of those same spheres and all of the same doubt. Look at this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, right? I mean, take note. This is post-resurrection Jesus standing in front of them. This is the Jesus that they saw get hung on a cross, get thrown in a grave, rise to life and they've been walking around with him for several weeks now talking with him eating with him they've hung out with him they've they've touched him they know he's real he's standing in front of them they're worshiping him but some of them are still going is this for real anybody resonate with that whatever level of doubt you're wrestling with that doesn't disqualify you from being a follower of jesus because it was to a group of doubting messy disciples that he gave these orders right after it says but some doubted jesus launched into his marching orders all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i've commanded you and behold i'm with you always to the very end of the age now that puts us in a place where if that's really true if he really did all that, and if all that's really true, if he's not a liar, if he's not a lunatic, but he really is Lord of everything, then we're compelled to go and make this announcement. Good news, right? And this is where I think it's so important for us to remember before we go to others to focus on what Jesus has done for us and let what we do for others flow out of what Jesus has done for us. One of the things I love about history is that history has all these moments along the way, all these sometimes small, sometimes big, like arrows pointing to Jesus, these, these foreshadowings, these moments where, where it just points to what Jesus would one day do for us on the cross. One of those like major arrows pointing to Jesus was the story of this, this group of slaves who had been in Egypt for about 400 years and they, their identity was all wrapped up in being slaves. Their identity was all wrapped up into this heavy burden that they lived with day after day after day. They, they saw themselves through the filter of being in chains and being in bondage and being a slave. That was their paradigm. And then God sent someone to them 
to make an announcement to their, who they thought was their master, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And that person, Moses, said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then God started doing things for them that they could have never done for themselves. And finally, Pharaoh was compelled to say, get out of here. You're free. Go. And in a moment, in a day, in an instant, they became free. And they left Egypt. And they went out into the desert and they quickly came to a point, a dead end, where they, they were standing in front of something that was impossible to cross, the Red Sea. And at the same time, their past was coming back to haunt them, literally threatening to overwhelm them. The Pharaoh and his armies came, came after them, going, we can't, they had a change of heart, we can't let go of our slave labor. And so all of their past, does this feel familiar? All of their shame, all of their fear, all of their insecurity, all of their past identity is bearing down on them, and they have nowhere to go. Does that feel familiar to anybody? And it's in that moment that God makes a way where there was no other way. He does the impossible. He opens the sea in front of them and all they have to do is walk through on the dry land. God did for them what they could never do for themselves. All of that's an arrow pointing to Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's not an arrogant statement if it's true. It's the most loving thing he could ever announce to us. And if we're honest, some of us, we stand in front of this way that Jesus has made for us and we opt for another, another choice. I mean, imagine how absurd it would have been on that day that he, he split the sea for those slaves to go, you know what, thank you God, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over here, I'm gonna try to swim. Or I'm gonna run around this or I'm gonna turn and fight the enemy. God's going, no, I made a way for you. You don't have to do anything. Just, just walk in the way that I made for you. And a lot of us, that's what we do in, in the face of the cross of Jesus. We go, no, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll try to do this on my own. I'll try to be a good person. I'll try to check off religious boxes. I'll go to church. I'll, I'll, I'll hope for karma, whatever that may be. And, and God's going, no, I did this for you. You see, here's the thing about grace. Grace is offensive. And it's hard for us to deal with sometimes because it takes away all the things that we would utilize on our own behalf to earn our own way. And grace is bad news before it's good news. The bad news goes like this. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. On my own, I'm not sufficient. I'm not enough. I fall short. I can't do it. And there's no hope. That's bad news. But grace doesn't stop there, which is what makes it amazing. With Jesus, I am sufficient. Through Jesus, I am enough. And with Jesus, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And because of Jesus, I have hope. So here's what we're going to do just in the middle of this series leading up to Easter. We're going to press pause and we're going to celebrate together. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're, we're going to take some bread. And we're going to take that bread and we're going we're gonna to remember Jesus' body that was broken for us on our behalf. That he received the punishment that we deserved. He went before us and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when we take this bread and we eat, we're making a declaration that we're no longer slaves, that we're children of God. And when we take this juice and we, and we drink it, we're remembering that Jesus literally paid the price for what we did. He, he knew no sin, but he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And when we drink it, we make this declaration that we are free. So let's press pause and let's celebrate this together today. Father God, we come before you and uh, we come before you as your children that you know and that you love. And you've proven that love 
by sending your one and only son for us so that we didn't have to live in condemnation or fear or shame or regret, but so that we could walk in the freedom that you've provided for us at great cost to yourself, but totally free for us. We're no longer slaves. We are your children. In Jesus' name, amen.